With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Police, open the door. Um, everything's all right in here. Ma'am, we have reason to believe someone extremely dangerous is in the motel. We're conducting a room-to-room search. I'm alone, officer. Person could be holding you at gunpoint, forcing you to say that. Please open the door. I don't think I should. Ma'am, you have three seconds before I break this door down. One. Two. Hey. Wanna get it on? <laughs> Hell yeah. is over we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps you want to get it on i do i do indeed i'm josh wiggler i'm joined here by mike bloom mike just give me a hell yeah hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> what if that's how kate responded to oh, yeah. like, hey, you want to do it hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> Sounding like, I don't know, Bobby Hill on crack or something. Oh, God. Yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh, my God. Uh, what's in it for Monica here on Lost Season 3? <laughs> and it takes place in Florida, too, so it's all too pertinent. Yeah, Monica Culpepper disguised for Kate Austin here as we are finishing out, Mike, this... Uh, this finishing out. Finishing out. We're coming out of the Season 3 mini-season that kicked off the whole season, this six-episode pod that has taken us, like, 400 years to get through. <laughs> so sorry. Again, so sorry, but we are through it. This is it. It's I do. And look, I feel like we do end on a high note. I think that there's some people who like to, to, to knock on... I do. I don't. And then you open the door and say, hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. I don't knock on I do. I think I do is a good episode of Lost. Yeah, I mean, I, I, not to jump too far ahead, I do want to, at the end of this podcast, I think really look at the lens of the first six episodes of Lost, which, as we talked about going into season three, are definitely considered, I think, by large, the doldrums of the series, and really ask... Were they that bad? But I think when you're talking about ending on a high note, I think end is the operative term, particularly. I think, you know, the last act in particular is very invigorating. And yeah, I would agree. Well, I would say, you know what? The Hydra Island stuff in particular is very fun this episode. The other stuff dressed around it, we can whatever, do, whatever, do. We, 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 can, yeah. we can get into. But I, I do think if this is supposed to serve as a conclusion to the 
Hydra-centric six episodes. Granted, we're still going to stay on Hydra for a bit because Jack's obviously going to remain behind and throw some footballs with Tom Friendly uh, in the future. I think that this is a, a reasonably good way to end this mini-arc from a Hydra perspective. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get more Hydra as soon as next week. Not in Portland is Escape from Hydra Island, and then we're going to get Stranger in a Strange Land, which is still dealing with Hydra Island. And that's the, you know, talked about as the worst episode of Lost. So maybe like a piece of that is like, Come on, guys! You said you were done. You said you were done. And so, like, I think, like, maybe the Hydra Island stuff, like, outstays its welcome by an episode. Uh, that could be a piece of why mm. Stranger in a Strange Land gets dunked on as hard as it does. Yeah, maybe it's this idea of like Kate and Sawyer left Hydra, and so should we. <laughs> yeah, we should have left in the outrigger. We should have gone in, well. and that's what that second outrigger was for. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're talking. I do. Uh, we we've got feedback to get through. Of course, you can always send that our way down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can also send it to us on Twitter at postshowrecaps is our Twitter account. I'm at Rand Howard. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. Uh, is there anything else about I do you want to say before we go forth into the jungle, Mike? Not about I do, but let me present a breaking piece of lost news. Will not be breaking uh, if you're listening to this on Friday, but breaking from the time we are literally recording this, they just announced the first wave of panels at New York City Comic Con this year, which is all done virtually. And one of them is Lost Anniversary Fan Q&A with Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse. Yo! That's cool, and I'm disappointed that it's not in person, because I'd like to be there for that, but it'll be a cool thing to have in our ears and our eyes, because it'll be streaming, uh, I'm sure. Uh, if it's anything like the Comic-Con stuff, it'll be on uh, the YouTubes. Yeah, and it and it's I I don't know if if this first wave means that they're all going to be on the first day, which is October eighth. But either way, it's going to happen. Maybe we'll have some bonus DTH coverage about it. But yeah, be prepared. You know, there's going to be a lot about Damon and Carlton. We're going to get into some Damon and Carlton stuff this episode. They in fact wrote. Yep. I do. Uh, but I think that you know this is an opportunity to I think drudge up uh some maybe unanswered questions from the past luckily we don't need to answer ask them about who wrote the song that hurley mm-hmm. plays on his radio yeah, and numbers that. we have solved that mystery we've so we can that. check that box we've got that i mean this actually might be a good thought exercise is what are the questions to ask damon and carlton at this point in their careers with this right. distance away from lost what are the questions that should be asked of damon in Carlton. Um, so maybe, I don't know, if we want to, if we want to send that to down the hatch at and then we can read some of them on the podcast mm, next I week. Like that. And then in so doing, maybe just like put that out into the ether of, uh, <laughs> and hope that someone hope, will listen. Yeah. <laughs> hope that someone snatches that up and listens and then, uh, asks Damon and Carlton at some point in time. Um, but that's really exciting. That's very cool. I was a little nervous. I thought that you were going to say, they just announced a Lost reboot. And I was going to say, Mike, you should have told me that because I can't record the podcast now. I got to work. <laughs> like, that is that is like a breaking news assignment for me. I got to go, get back to my Animal Crossing Island. Oh, Clearly, it has God. something to do with it. Yes, my Animal Crossing Island, which uh, the great Kevin Mahadeo just visited. Uh, he visited my dream island the other night, and he was sending wow, me... Wow, that is, I think, the closest you're going to ever get to Kevin, like, engaging in some lost space content. You know what? 
I thought so too, but then he paid a very authentic compliment to Lost on the Lovecraft Country podcast this week, and I was floored. Wow. I was floored. Well, and I know you haven't listened yet to when I, I filled it on you on the tribute to Chadwick Boseman yeah. podcast, the Black Panther Part One, but he actually opened his opening line was a Lost reference. So, like, he is incepting all of our brains right oh, now. Oh, my God. Or we're incepting his with all of our Lost stuff. Anyway, that dream address to visit the island on Animal Crossing New Horizons. Once again, that's D. A four six eight six one two four five seven two seven four. That's <laughs> doesn't help when you drone on the numbers in a pattern. That's D A four six eight six. I know it's a dream address, but you're making people start to fall asleep. One with that two wall. <laughs> four five seven two seven four. Come to the island. Check out what's going on. What's up with all the gnomes? The anothers. This is very very scary. <laughs> Don't forget to read the message board and take the tools. Anyway, let's go forth into the jungle. Let's talk. I do. Directed by Tucker Gates. Co-written by Darleton. Originally aired November eighth, two thousand six. Centers. On Kate Austin. I don't know if this is a hot take or not, Mike, but this is the best Kate episode so far, I think. I definitively so. Again, not to reflect too much about our uh, our ratings at the end, but spoiler alert, I believe that you and I both rate this episode slightly higher than Tabula Rasa. And I will say that it's not like, I would say it's a marginally better episode, but if we're also comparing it to Born to Run and what Kate Dad, and especially whatever the case may be, yeah, yeah, this one stands this out. This one stands out, and, you know, maybe as a Kate episode, uh, Tabula Ross is the better episode. But right. as I think, because I think we actually postulated that back then of is this the base, the best Kate flashback? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, look, love me some Nathan Fillion. Fun to see Mal Reynolds here. A little weird that this is the usage of Nathan Fillion on Lost, but it's fun. It's a good footnote in the in the history of the show. Um, but I, I think that the the Kate the Kate flashback stuff is secondary to a lot of like the urgency that's happening on Hydra Island. And that is the thing uh, that that makes this episode special for me. It's like there's it's just a very it's a very psychological episode. Um, I think it's also satisfying on a character level. Um, mm-hmm. I know that we had gotten uh, a bit of feedback from the great uh, Brendan Fitzpatrick saying the ultimate problem I do has is the eventual switcheroo of the love story. The episode still works great for Jack, but maybe not great for Skate. We know that that Jack and Kate are ultimately going to be end game as opposed to Kate and Sawyer. So is that impacting negatively this episode that this is like the Sawyer and Kate episode? Right. This is, this is uh, maybe from some people's perspective, quote unquote, unnecessarily complicating the plot by throwing in a skate sex scene. And like, I get, I get that, but I actually think that there are ways in which, and I look forward to talking about it, that I think that Sawyer and Kate getting together and being really open and vulnerable with each other, whether or not like that uh, like advances their relationship is secondary to the fact that I think it advances, it advances them individually. Um, mm-hmm. I think like it pushes them further down the line of discovering who they are. Uh, and right. like it, it gives Sawyer a moment to like, actually accept that somebody cares about him and like to care back and to do that without irony uh i think is not an insignificant step 
from the Sawyer that we have seen uh, through, you know, two seasons and counting now. Um, so let's go into the episode. The episode begins in flashback territory. It's what we listen to, right? Like Kate's in a motel yeah. room. Uh, there, there, there's a little bit, there's a weird moment. So Anne Margaret slowly plays and Lost PM makes note that it's only, it's one of only two times that there is this odd situation where there is non Giacchino music playing, but it's non diegetic, meaning it's not played like in the world of the characters where they are listening to music like we've experienced with Kate and Patsy Klein in the past. It's just like for some reason uh, they chose to put this this song in there to score this scene. And the weirdness does not stop there. Uh, Josh, I, have a, I think I have a couple of hot takes about this episode. I don't know. I haven't gauged your opinion about it, so I don't know if it's hot. Uh, comparatively with the, the current panel here, but I'll start right out here and say, God, Kate's hair is terrible in this episode. <laughs> I mean, I think it makes it, you know, one of the things I thought was, is this like a, is this a secret time travel episode? Was like Kate stuck in a, in a different time. I know, well, you've been, you spoke about Lovecraft Country, very 1950s, you know, edging on beehive do for and, Kate but, in this opening scene. And, and I, I think lost has trouble with hair sometimes with like with like using hair as a means with which to identify when you're in a different time or place uh i think that this definitely would chart on that list but i i think that that is the idea that they are going for whether or not it sells is a different story but i understand what they're trying to sell that what they're trying to sell is this is a very different kate you know at first it and and i think like the slowly of it all i think the music and the way that it's shot and Kate is like in a in a motel room and she's got a box and we're used to seeing Kate do like secret yeah, it's like oh here she is she's pulling yeah, out the it's curling another heist iron. you know like all sorts of stuff and like I think it's supposed to like get us in that suspicious place with Kate only for us to to kind of realize that yeah Kate is incognito once again um, but in a way where she's trying to like settle in and settle down and stop running for for a minute so I think the disguise at first like reads fine when you think of it just as a disguise uh then when you realize that it's not just a disguise but it's supposed to be sort of evocative of where kate is at at this moment in her life like i think that you can see that intention i think maybe the way that it plays in reality is just a, a little strange and i i wonder if that's like more a remark on the costuming or a mm -hmm. remark on like if you're being more charitable about it i think more a remark that like kate austin doesn't wear this life easily yeah well, I mean, also, like, Kate is, uh, like, Miss Jeans and a T-shirt, right. right? And so, sort of much like we saw this weird image of her wearing this dress throughout most of her time in these first six episodes, she really is dressed like that white picket fence housewife for most of this time. I mean, her hair, much like her, is going straight for this flashback. And I totally agree that I think that the symbolic representation behind it, honestly, is probably the strongest thing in this entire flashback, which we'll certainly get into. It's just, I don't know. I think it's maybe because Evangeline Lilly has just like such amazing natural curls that like, I want to see that volume come out. And so while I do understand the intentionality behind it, it's not fun to watch her sort of model this different straight hair. I, I want to see those curls fall, which luckily we get to in the course of the island stuff. Yeah. I mostly want to see taco night and we don't really get to see taco night. That's the thing I'm focused well, she doesn't on. Do we taco night, so I'd imagine it's a bit half fast. Yeah, personally. Maybe uh, her heart's not in it. So here's, here's, Nathan Fillion, uh, Kevin, speaking of Kevin, uh, that he's like, hey, want to get it on? She's like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a, also like a quintessential Nathan Fillion thing, right? Like, 
up to this point, I think he was sort of known as like the the swaggering, smooth type of guy, a little Sawyer-esque. I am going to listen. Maybe my nerd card should be revoked. I have never seen Firefly, but I could imagine that the character he did play there was a little Sawyer-esque and sort of being that cavalier cowboy yeah, leader. A, you know, he's a space rogue, you know, Han Solo-esque. And I think that Sawyer is Han Solo-esque as well. Uh, yeah, so, so it's clear that, like, even though uh, we will find out that Kevin obviously represents a side of law and order, that he can certainly bring a different sense uh, to the bedroom. But I also kind of feel for the people in this motel who are like, wait, did the police just come interview that poor woman? And now what's going on? Do I need to hide all my other illicit activities? But only to find out that there's some enchilada stuff going on. There's taco <laughs> night of it all. Yeah, who knows about taco night? But the enchiladas are definitely being prepared. Uh, meanwhile, on the island, Sawyer is bummed out. Right? Like, you know, he knows that they're not ever getting off the island. Yeah, and, so he's and sort of a, just resigned. And this is a, it's a weird thing where the cost of living uh, obviously had us take a break. From this, that we need to sort of put ourselves back into Sawyer's mind frame at the end of Every Man for Himself, where Ben essentially broke him, showed yep. him the island, and said, Hey, look, I also tricked you uh, with the whole pacemaker thing. Ha 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 ha, na 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 boo boo. And you can see it, like, Sawyer is. <laughs> exact quote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sawyer is, is sitting in the corner of the cage, like, despondently tossing rocks at the button, which he knows is not electrified anymore. It's, it's just like, like you said, he's broken. Uh, he, and he even sees through Kate's efforts to make him feel productive. He just feels like there's, there's no use for anything, which I suppose it's Ben's point at this moment. Again, I, I do think the institution of bringing Sawyer and Kate in there is still a little murky in the sense of what they want out of Jack. But I guess if Sawyer was sort of like the squeaky wheel, it is properly greased right now. Uh, so he's, he's bummed. He's just throwing rocks at the, at the warning. Kate's like, get me a fish biscuit. It's like, no, I don't want to. You should have saved stuff from that delicious breakfast you had with Ben a couple weeks ago. Yeah, or the fish biscuit that he threw to her then. Uh, How much of it did she eat? I'm assuming she scarfed it down. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, All right, so meanwhile, elsewhere on Hydra Island, uh, let's go for a checkup, a consultation with the good Dr. Shepard. Jack is going to be examining Ben's x-rays, and ooh, the shade, here it comes. You took these blood tests, made all the notations. How old are the x-rays? A week. The tumor on your spine is borderline inoperable. And at the rate it's growing, that borderline goes away in about one week. Oh. The OR we were in, is that fully equipped? Yes. Anesthesia? Sterile? Yes. You need to be in surgery yesterday. All right, then. Whatever you need, it's yours. I'm ready. (laughs) No, I think you misunderstood me. I didn't say I was going to do it. I just wanted you to understand how you're going to die. You think I believe you people? You think I trust you that I'm going to just do the surgery and hope that you let me go? Jack!
Jack. I'm very disappointed in your decision. Well, Ben, at least you won't have to be disappointed for very long. So look, I, I know that we have gotten on Jack in the past for unintentionally being an asshole sometimes with his leadership. But I gotta say, when Jack intentionally tries to be an asshole, it's a lot of fun. Um, at least you won't have to be disappointed for very long is so effing harsh. Like, we need that gif of all the people going, oh! Yes, yeah, just like falling over because like, holy shit, you just killed this guy who only has a week to live. Yeah, and then not only that, I feel like the the alley-oop was, I didn't say I was going to do it. I just wanted you to understand how you're going to die. He held the carrot in front of Ben's face, then took the carrot and ate it in front of him. I mean, wow. Yeah, well, it's like, so he's like, he's, he's just, he's just trolling him so hard. And it's so great that Jack like gives him like like he builds up the hope, you know. It's like he he does what Ben in in one scene he does what Ben said he was trying to do. Yeah. We had such a great plan to break you, to make you filled with hope, and then we would make you one of us. And you'd want to do it, uh, and like Jack like basically does that to Ben right now. He's like, oh yeah, but I'm not going to do it. I just want you to know what's going to go down. Uh, so so let's let's talk about because uh, I want so I want to track so Jack's psychology throughout this episode to the point where we end this episode on where he decides I'm going to go through the, with the surgery but it's going to end on my terms in a manner of speaking because again go back to the cost of living the very last thing we saw was Juliet sort of making this secret plea with Jack go through with the surgery but Ben needs to die on the operating table and we'll all get what we want. So is this his direct reaction to that? Because I thought it was interesting. The most interesting part of this, outside of Jack's shade throwing and folder throwing as well, were Juliet's reactions. Uh, you know, when Jack starts going aggro, uh, saying, why would I believe you? She sort of gives a look to him that gives off this idea of like, what are you doing? I thought we had a deal. What's your perception as to how Jack is feeling at this moment as to whether or not he's actually going to go through with Juliet's offer? Yeah, I don't think he's going to at this point. I think that this is his rejection of all of it. I think this is him being like, screw all of you and your games. I'm out. Um, I'm not I'm not playing along with any of this. Uh, you think I trust any of you? You guys keep screwing with me. I don't trust any of you. It's like, I think like even like, even though Juliet gave her best pitch, I think like the idea that he's being fed all of this different information. Jack is like a relatively straightforward person. Uh, like he doesn't suffer fools easily. He doesn't suffer th- like he's, he, he's like in self deception. You know, he, he right. doesn't, you know, he's not fully honest with himself, but I think that he would, uh, he would consider himself somebody who deals in honesty. Uh, and so I think that all of this is just like really um, antithetical to the way that he carries himself. Uh, but I think like you, you, for me anyway, unless you want to say that Jack is a great actor and I don't really see that from him. No, he's not a good, he's a good Jackter, but not a good actor. Not, not in this moment anyway. But what I, what I, what I do see is like when he, when Juliet tries to intercede and he like throws the folder at her like he like he's like basically like throws it in her face and it's if if not for the you know the glass barrier um you know who knows who knows what happens but like it is such like a violent act 
he's so angry. Like, I think he's even angry at Juliet for the suggestion of, like, uh, kill yeah. Ben, I'll look out for you. Basically, like, oh, you thought you could use me as a pawn in your game. And he's, from that- resent- he's resentful about being powerless, and so he is mm. using this as a moment to be powerful. Because yeah, he, he does have the power. I mean, we talked about this last episode. He had the power in the form of information. From that perspective, I do wonder in maybe a different world, and maybe this speaks more to Jack as a reality TV contestant than Jack, the character on Lost, of like, could he have possibly in another world approached Ben and be like, hey, just so you know, uh, Juliet showed me this video where she told me to kill you and then really drive that stake. And granted, Juliet's going to sort of fall to his side anyway, but it's an it's an interesting perspective. I will also say, uh, I think Christian Shepard would be pretty proud of Jack in this moment, right? Uh, he had what it takes right now and basically saying F you to somebody and not necessarily taking the, the doctor above all approach. Well, I also think that if Juliet is like, hey... Ben should die. No one will be upset about it. And I'll protect you in doing nothing. Ben's going to die. Like that's Jack's professional read. Jack's Mm. professional read as a, as a surgeon is like, you're going to, you should have been in surgery yesterday. You're going to be dead in a week. Uh, This is not good. You're not going to be disappointed for very long. Uh, That like maybe for him, like the most palatable option here and maybe the smartest play right now for him from where he's sitting without knowing the Kate and Sawyer stuff is to just let nature take its course. Uh, to let mm. let let things go the, the way that they're going. The rat. <laughs> yeah, let the snake eat the rat, and and let Ben succumb to his illness. And when he's dead, if Juliet can actually do what she said she could do, then maybe she'll protect him. Yeah, well, I'm also wondering from that perspective, could there be some morality going on from Jack's perspective too? Of I don't want to be a murderer necessarily and yeah, kill this well, guy they're, on the operating they're, table. Yeah, and they're asking him to, you know, really like violate his sacred vow as a doctor. Right. That's essentially not, that's not like, a nothing do, deal. Do harm is yeah. essentially what Juliet is asking him to do. Yeah. And so it could be a matter of like, how much is that going to weigh? I mean, obviously I have my feelings towards Ben, but I wouldn't necessarily, you know, put m- my career, quote unquote, on the line to be able to do your dirty work in a manner of speaking. So yeah, as we said, it's very loaded, and I pulled that clip, and spoiler alert, I'm going to pull the clip when Jack inevitably accepts doing the surgery. And I, I think I think we should just track throughout this episode, I think Jack's waxing and waning thoughts about what this surgery means and why he should or shouldn't do it. All right, track Shepard. Uh, flashback time. Uh, Kevin and Monica just did it. Uh, it's bad luck to to see the bride before the wedding, but I guess that's if the bride's in her dress. Is what Kevin says, and you, my also, friend, so, are naked. So it's twelve hours before the wedding. So I'm assuming this is probably at night. I'm assuming because I'm pretty sure they got married during the day. The next day, it seemed like it. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess I don't know. I I wonder sort of what. Was this something that they set up? Was it that Kate was like, okay, I don't want to see you, so let me stay in a hotel, and Kevin just couldn't resist? Why is Kevin working 12 hours before he has to get married, unless he's just wearing the uniform for fun and games inside the bedroom? There are a lot of questions about the callous love life that just mystifies me in this episode. Yeah, and I one of the things that is a really funny runner to me throughout this episode is all the times that people tell Kate, in the flashback, like you are the realest person I've yeah. ever met. Yeah, I think Kevin said in this uh, in this one, right? Like, oh, you're so honest with me. Yeah, I know it's been fast, but this is real, Monica. 
it's like yeah and so and so that's the thing as well is you know <laughs> to sort of i guess uh cast some shade over this flashback I, it's it's sort of i'll put it sort of part and parcel with the flashback from like the glass ballerina every man for himself and further instructions in that like i wouldn't say it's outwardly terrible it's just what new information is it necessarily giving us about the character and i think my hot take about this is maybe this flashback would be more palpable if i just mentioned the glass ballerina maybe in another kate episode we could have gotten kevin introduced we could have seen the two of them interacting because i think if you're supposed to make us care about you know kate and kevin's relationship in the way that she does to have him one and done in this episode i feel like is a bit too high of a mountain to climb yeah, but it makes me laugh really, really hard every time they're like, Kate, you're just like a really solid, or Monica, 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 you're just so solid, sturdy as an oak. When I met you, I knew that everything you'd ever say was the truth. You it's would just, never lie to me. You never even <laughs> run anywhere, only walk. You have yeah. nowhere to run to anymore. You just walk at such an even pace, I can't even imagine you running Monica. Uh, and she's just always like, yeah. Mm. So, I don't know. It's maybe a little weird, but it cracks me up. The Kate flashback of this episode makes me laugh really hard. Every single scene being about like, you're just such a solid, trustworthy person. <laughs> Like, I don't know if this is like, should we collectively give an LVP point to everybody in the Kate flashback for being so easily duped uh, or give Kate an MVP for like running circles around these people. I'm so is it what, to just do like the, the, the larger callous family tree gets yeah. the LVP point? Yeah, I think I think I'll just give Kate an MVP oh, because she just runs Kevin circles around everybody. Mc- Callister. <gasps> See, he well if that's if that's what you're trying to say, that this is a grown up Kevin, then like he really should know better. Yeah, well, I think maybe he let his guard down. He's like, look, you haven't broken into my house yet to yeah. try to rob yeah. me. You you evaded all my paint cans swimming down the stairs. I know that means we're meant to be. Yeah, she's disarmed all of the booby traps surrounding his heart. Uh, all right, so that's what's going on in the flashback. Meanwhile, here comes Danny Pickett. It's like, all right, Kate, time to go to work. Sawyer gets the day off. Kate doesn't like that. Uh, she says, we're a team. Uh, you break the rocks and I haul them. Which is the opposite from the jobs they were given four episodes ago. So I don't know if the job swapped or Kate just had him mixed up in her head. Mike, uh, Mike Puncher had asked us, when it comes to breaking rocks on the podcast, which one of you breaks the rocks and which one of you hauls them? I guess we have to really discern what that means symbolically. What does it mean right? to break the rocks? I think breaking the rocks really means to, like, break things down to really bring things down to the granular level. And then I think hauling them is ultimately transporting them in a way to make them consumable or usable for the listening populace. Yeah. So neither of us do anything. <laughs> Both of us have been shocked at this point. Yeah, we're, we're just, just shocked. Not- we're twitching on the ground. Yeah, not shocked, shocked. Yeah, and we're shocked. Just, <laughs> we're just twitching on the ground saying, yeah. please don't do it again, sir. Uh, I'll do whatever with the rocks. Oh, my God. All right, let's go back to the main island where Mr. Echo's uh, do we body... Have to- <laughs> That Mr. Echo is not quite cold yet. Uh, they're trying to figure out what to do. They're not going to bring him back. There have been too many funerals lately, so we're just going to leave him here. So, And nobody will notice that Mr. Echo went into the jungle and never came back. Yeah, no one talk about what happened to Mr. Echo. Uh, well, I guess, like, in fairness, the only person who really knows him is Bernard. And maybe they could just be like, yo, Bernard, don't tell anyone, but, like, dude died. Do you think they should gaslight 
815 into thinking that Mr. Echo never existed. Yeah, they're like, what happened to Mr. Echo? You're like, who? Oh, uh, you know, the guy who built a church? No, Charlie built that. Yeah, Charlie built that. I thought that was a Starbucks. Uh, so Mr. Echo uh, is still deceased. Uh, John Locke has a plan uh, for what to do with the body. He's going to go off on his own, but Saeed doesn't want him to go alone. He's concerned for Locke. He shouldn't be alone right now. Uh, but the truth is, is that we want to... Saeed wants to, to grill Locke on what's going on here. He expects that Locke knows a little bit more than he's saying. So let's listen in on this conversation between Saeed Jarrah and John Locke. So what killed Echo? Folks back at the beach call it the monster. I don't really have a name for it. You don't believe in monsters. I believe in what I can see. But obviously you have. So why don't you tell me what you think it is? Might be what brought us here. So you believe that this monster decided that Echo was meant to die? I believe Echo died for a reason. I just don't know what it is yet. Is that why you lied? We're not headed back towards the camp, are we, John? Sure we are. Just need to take a little detour first. So, yeah, the reason why I included that is, it just you know, first off, I love Saeed Locke conversations. I think it, those are two characters of fundamentally different beliefs that it's always interesting to sort of see them come head to head, even though they haven't really in this episode. And honestly, this scene, which is probably the most material that this on island plot will take this episode. It's just sort of a check in, uh, a reestablishment of value. Saeed once again saying, I don't believe what I can't see, which was talked about a bit in abandon. And then Locke in his first little, you know, uh, he had, he got his group back as we talked about in further instructions. And now he is without echo and he is now formally a Firm to Saeed that he feels more imbued with his mission than ever to serve the island, even if he hasn't entirely figured out why Echo died yet. Yeah, one of the things that I like a lot about season three is there is a like I think that there's some some cool character pairings this season, um, mm. and that there will be a fairly substantial arc of season three where John and Saeed are paired together. Uh, yeah. And and what I like about that is that Saeed is is sort of filling in the, the man of science role uh, for Jack while Jack is away on, you know, everything <laughs> he's, that he's... He's the substitute man of science. Well, yeah, but he's, all, he's also, um, like he says, like, I believe in what I can see. So he's like... He's less stubborn than Jack in this right. way. Like he's more open to to believing something extreme if he sees it. Hence uh, the actions of abandoned. You know, so I I really I really like these two together. We don't get a ton of them together on the show. We get some, you know, Navine Andrews and Terry O'Quinn in the final <laughs> season, but it's not exactly what we're, you know. Ironically enough, it's him with the monster. Um <laughs> which is which is kind of fun. Um but I I really like the Saeed and Locke stuff that we get here in season and three i just think it's a it's a cool pairing that doesn't happen a ton so i enjoy it while we've got it yeah and also uh, uh and also to have saeed truly in character for saeed be extremely wary of Locke and insist that he go off with them on this little detour you know desmond i think is also there's a lot of cuts to him like very warily eyeing Locke when he's super nonchalant about like yeah i guess it was an animal went and killed echo ignore the sounds that sounded like a you know a, a, a receipt printer on a taxi cab that were heard in the jungles earlier no 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 must have been an animal mm-hmm. but i think desmond at this point is still trying to figure out his place 
in the camp that he doesn't feel it's necessarily his role to speak up about John and, and follow him mercilessly. But say DJF at this point, he's like, listen, I've got John Locke pegged pretty well since post Boone death. Like I'm, I'm going to follow him here and, and get to the bottom of everything. All right. Let's go back to the runway. Uh, we're breaking rocks Bring it to the runway, breaking rocks, hauling rocks, uh, a brief interruption here. Uh, compound breach, compound breach. Somebody has arrived. Let's listen in and find out who it is. Get up. Come on, get up. Go. What the hell do you think you're doing? What, you going to shoot me? No, you're not supposed to be here. So let's just call What did you do to him, Danny? Where is he? I want to talk to Ben. That sounds like a great idea. So why don't we just lower our little sleep? Where is he? Tell me! No, no! Get off of me! Get her out of here. Get her out of here! Put me down! Listen, whatever they say, don't believe them! They're gonna kill your boyfriend! Just like they killed mine! All right, so if they're going to kill Kate's boyfriend just like they killed Alex's, then they're not. Yeah, here's the thing. Uh, Alex has sort of, I think, taken the assumption that nobody answers her when she asks about Carl as a sign that for the worst that he is dead. I mean, look, she knows how maniacal and protective Ben can be, so it's not a completely unreasonable conclusion to jump to. I will say that I think uh I don't know what Alex's plan here was. Was she planning to planning to jailbreak these two? Because if so, facing down many armed men with a slingshot, uh even David would say you are outmatched there. I, I think it's it's a foolhardy concept. I mean, here's yet another hot take from me, Josh. Honestly, the few scenes we've seen of Alex so far kind of haven't been doing it for me. Yeah. Like she's she's kind of a right now she's she's kind of landing with a bit of a, a you know <laughs> um yeah <laughs> I mean I I really like the character a lot uh mostly for like what she represents I think um and I think she is a character who, like, very clearly means well, is a character who uh, has, you know, a lot of mythological significance to Rousseau, to Ben. Right. And there's good stuff coming up with Alex, for sure, just, like, unabashedly good stuff. Um, and I think even, like, when she was, like, uh, you can keep the dress looks better on you, I think is a, is a funny line. Um, but this is a horrible plan. Yeah! <laughs> This was a horrible, horrible, horrible plan. Considering that she stands there for all of 15 seconds before she, surprise, surprise, gets surrounded and then easily dispatched by these guys. It's just a really bad plan. Uh, like a shockingly bad plan. Shot! A shot, a shottingly bad plan is she's just like gonna break in with the slingshot and this is gonna do it? Like, no, that's not gonna work. You're gonna get yourself killed. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I mean, we'll talk later about how Juliet does not mention to Ben about what happened with Alex. I wonder if that's more so for Ben's sake or for Alex's. But yeah, I'm not entirely sure where her head is at. Maybe she's so clouded with this idea that if she believes indeed that Carl is dead, that she's just sort of like 
you know, uh, acting out of rage here, but it's not exactly completely thought out to that point, to the point where, like, she is carried away very easily. And even Sawyer is, like, so nonplussed by this. Kate looks over to him shockingly with the whole, they'll kill your boyfriend, and he looks at her like, it's a living. You know, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? All right, so after this whole, uh, this whole fuss, uh, Juliet's gonna come to Kate. And Juliet's well, actually, just- can I ask one more thing, actually, yeah, before course. we get to this? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so, we didn't pull this in the clip, but Pickett, when the compound breach was announced, asked, did the doctor get out again? Maybe my mind is mush, Josh. When was the first time Jack got out? Did the doctor get out? Oh, I guess, out I guess again. maybe are we talking about the events of, of a tale of two cities? Yeah, when maybe. He, like, yeah. Okay. I guess get out to me is more so affiliated with like going outside, but I guess if, if it's more so like he got out of his quarters, then he got that out of his chamber, you know, maybe he's getting a little bit further this time enough that they got to blare the alarms. Mm-hmm. So I wonder from that perspective, maybe compound. I must say compound bleach, compound uh, which sounds, bleach. Like, sounds like a laundry product that's used in the <laughs> Dharma initiative. Uh, compound breach would have come up when that whole little mishigash with the, the door full of water happened. Yeah, uh, maybe uh, if they had gotten further in. Yeah, uh, but we didn't see that. They would have edited that out of the show. So- do you think when they get a pallet drop full of laundry detergent, they do compound bleach? <laughs> compound bleach, and everyone like rushes to swarm like the two washer dryer units they've got on Hydra Island. Yeah, listen, look, those jumpsuits. Uh, I guess everyone has to do laundry together because they're all wearing the exact same thing at all times. But yeah, those it's, it's- jumpsuits are actually hot magenta. Uh, they're not. Uh, they're not. Uh, yeah, you know, somebody just threw in a bad color in one of those washes, and it just ruined everything just for everyone. Caked in island gunk. That's why they're so dark. Uh, so Juliet's going to come to Kate. Says, "Come with me. Put the hood on your head." Just join me. And she's like, you really think I'm going to do this? And she goes, yeah, I do. Because the dude over there that, you know, Pickett, the guy who sucks, he's going to kill Sawyer. Uh, But if you come with me, we might be able to save Sawyer. Uh, And so Kate's like, yeah, okay, I'm in. Yeah, it's I mean, it's interesting. This is the first Juliet Kate interaction that we're going to get. And it's going to be explored in a much larger capacity in Left Behind, which is another Kate episode later this season. But it's crazy to think about, like, the first time that these characters really talk to each other. And true to Juliet's way of comporting herself, as we've seen throughout season three, it is polite but firm is the way I would put it, right? Of like, I'm going to be nice to you. I'm not going to be picket and go at you at a 10, but I'm going to politely ask you to do something, but also give you a reason to do it, which is a bit more threatening. Yeah. So Kate's going to join Juliet on a mission to save Sawyer. Uh, meanwhile, another uh, flashback. It's the wedding. Uh, it's going to be the, the mother-in-law is like, here, you're the most honest person I've ever met, Monica. <laughs> I have this, this family heirloom that I was going to give to my daughter, but I don't have one. So it's going to you and you're just so great and you're so yeah. honest. And then cut to, I guess, I don't know. I don't know if they skipped the vows or if this is a different ceremony. And the priest, I guess, says his own vows. Yeah, the priest, <laughs> well, the priest like, so normally I don't do this. But yeah. you're so honest. <laughs> but you're just so honest and good. And the moment I met you, Monica, I just knew you were just so honest uh, that you'd never committed a crime. And then Kevin says, well, let me let me follow up with you, uh, Reverend, by saying, really, what you see is what you get what you with, Monica. with Monica is what you get. Uh, she, she always does what's best for Monica. Uh, and so Monica and Kevin are married. 
Yeah, it seems like a small wedding party. I think I saw two people, which I guess makes sense. Uh, I do wonder, and again, maybe this speaks to how I personally would have liked another Florida-based flashback episode as to, like, how entrenched is Monica in the community? Like, does she have friends? Would they have been in her wedding party? Yes, yeah, she does. Was the res- Phoebe and Rachel. Ba, ba, imagine, ba, ba, imagine ba, ba, if she... I mean, imagine, though, if she did have friends named Phoebe and Rachel and, like, what that dynamic would have been like. Maybe that's why she had to change her hair to look more like Courtney Cox. Perhaps, perhaps, but which Courtney Cox, which Gail mm. Weathers is she trying to emulate right now? This is her hair right now is sort of Gail Weathers one. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, I would definitely say so. Yeah, first Gail Weathers, and then you uh, know what? Actually, she's in falls in love with a cop, much like Courtney mm-hmm. Cox meets the guy who played a cop in Scream One yeah. and falls in love with him. Yeah, they call uh, Kevin Deputy Dewey back at the station. <laughs> maybe don't ask maybe, why. but there's a, there's an interesting obviously uh an all is not well score where like we go into the the typical wedding bell march into the trombone slides of all is not well yeah uh because there's a lie that's happening and monica's just like oh these idiots these idiots <laughs> stop no telling idea. me you're i'm so honest like, oh god it's so hard to hear uh all right so juliet's gonna bring kate to jack and uh great scene great scene with uh with jack and kate uh, let's listen into what's going on there. Hey. You okay? Yeah. You? Yeah. I'm, I'm great. Where are they keeping you? Outside. In a cage. Sawyer? He's in a cage, too. <sighs> They're making us work. Work? On what? I don't know what it is, but it's big. We're hauling rocks and you... Hey. Did they hurt you? Kate, hey. Hey, it's gonna gonna be all right. It's gonna... This thing that they told you to do, this operation. She said that if you do it, then that they would... What did they do to you? Jack. What did they do to you? Nothing. How did they get you to ask me? What did they offer you? Nothing. Then what are you doing here? They're going to kill Sawyer. so sorry but she said that if you do it and if you do it soon they'll let us go and you believe them i have to (sighs) jack please we're done here I have to say that, unfortunately, I couldn't put the first part of the conversation there because it's completely visual, but just the image of Jack and Kate seeing each other for the first time in this season is so Powerful. well done. Yeah. yeah, Matthew Fox and Evangeline Lilly, like, it's awkward because there's glass between them and they're trying to do, like, what we're going to see Charlie do at the end of the season of, like, putting their hands up. You see, like, there is 
wonderment and ecstasy on Jack's face when he realizes who it is. Obviously, Kate had been asking for Jack since the beginning of the season. So, like, it's a really beautiful moment for these two characters, which is only, you know, it makes it that worse that this conversation ends with Jack bruntly sending Kate away, basically thinking, okay, she's been corrupted by them as well to get me to do the surgery away with her. I don't want to talk to her anymore. Yeah, and I think, you know, for Jack, certainly, and he'll say it at the end of the season, he's like, I love you. You know, he has that. So, like, he, he like, outright loves her. But I think in her own way, you imagine Kate does, too. Uh, at the very least, cares about him deeply. These are two right. people who are really, really close, whether it's romantically or not. Like, they have just been through fires together in a very brief time, but they have, like, been in the shit together. Um, and they've been in their own respective hells for the last, you know, week or whatever it's been on Hydra Island. So I, I think that there is something really powerful in the reunion here. Uh, and even, like, the fact that it it starts so powerfully and like it's it there is like sort of this like trepidation but this relief of being back around each other yeah and, i mean uh, kate asks jack how he is and he says great yeah i'm great which is weird to hear but i think he's great right now being able to see her jack has some lines in this episode that are just like uh very strange in context that's one of them like i'm great <laughs> oh yeah do peachy keen right now yeah, Kate. i'm great i'm doing great uh but then like when he finds out that she because i think that he knows the extent to which they have been messing with him so right. if they're messing with kate uh like he's like i think it's almost like like he's really pissed about that i think that it's less that he's mad about like her queer feelings towards sawyer no. uh like i think it's more like do you really believe that they're not going to kill Sawyer even if I do this? Like, I think that's where he's at with the others right now is that he just doesn't believe a freaking thing that they say. Yeah, I, I think and my read on it as well is I think he's less so angry at Kate and more so angry of like, wow, you really think you could get to me by bringing Kate in front of me to do it? You know, um, you're it's like asking mom and she said no. So you go to dad to say yes. But sort of from the opposite perspective, like, no, I'm still not going to do this. And the fact that you're manipulating me to do this by bringing her out just makes me want to say no even more. And that's the thing as well is even though Juliet says, I'll give you two some privacy. He knows that's not the case. He knows they're watching him at all times. And so that's why he yells directly into the camera, you know, get her out of here. And the last part of that scene that isn't in the clip is that it cuts to Ben staring at the screens with his John Lennon glasses, just fury behind his tight lips and basically just very curtly says, get her out of there. Cut to commercial. Yeah. Cut to commercial. We're done with all that. Good scene. Flashback. Taco night. Monica is at the grocery store. Yeah, and there's a fun little Muzak version of Daydream Believer playing, uh, apparently, which if you look up the origin to that song, I think it was, the Monkees did like a few songs about living suburban life, and that was one of them. So it makes sense to represent the mist that Monica is trying to surround herself with, of just being this good housewife who left Kate Austin and the runaway life behind. Yeah, she's making tacos, and Kevin's like, ugh. I hate your cooking. You don't cook. You don't make tacos. And she says, well, if you don't like them, no dessert. And he goes, what's for dessert? And she goes, enchiladas. <laughs> what? Uh, okay. But no, it, that type of. Oh, oh gotcha. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so 
there's like it's like there's as a total non sequitur. Let's go from Taco Night to let's call the U.S. Marshal. <laughs> yeah. like there's just like, like there's hmm. no it's setup. Like when you're when you're browsing through the grocery store and you're like, you know what? I remember I do need this. Maybe she was like, hmm, actually, you know what? Uh, I should probably call I that guy every March. Check in with Edward. Uh, yeah, there's like really no setup for it. It's pouring rain outside. She goes to a phone booth. She calls the guy. And it's our season three. It's our it's our seasonal check in with 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 Edward Mars. I don't know if we get him every single season, but we get him a bunch. No, I mean we got him every single season so far. Obviously, with the stuff in season one, he appeared during what Kate did in season two when he first arrested her. So, and I think this takes place. God, I want to say it takes place like after Left Behind and after uh, Born to Run. I believe like Kate has has left this point. Tom is dead, and I think Mars is talking with her. I believe. All right, let's uh, let's listen in and see how this goes with uh, with Kate and, and Mars. I'm sure it's going to go great. Agent Mars, it's me. Well, I'm glad. I realized this morning that it was the feast of the Ascension, and I was feeling bad. Has come and gone since you last called? I thought you and I were friends. I don't want to run anymore. What's his name? Does he know who you are? Edward, please. I know you don't want to spend the rest of your life chasing me. Please, I love this guy. Just let me go. I'll tell you what. You can really stay put. You really settle down. Then I'll stop chasing you. But you and I both know that's not going to happen. Let's talk about this. Uh, Because here's the thing, like... Again, maybe another bit of a hot take. Like, this is a pretty good episode for Edward Mars. Like, he's offering her kind of a lifeline here of, look, sure, I'll drop the manhunt against you uh, if you decide to really sell down. Now, maybe part of it is him knowing that she won't, and therefore he's sort of making a false claim. But I kind of think he's given some good advice to her at this point. I don't know, from a legal perspective, he's allowed to drop the manhunt against her just by fulfilling that promise. But look at him extending an olive branch here, no matter how false it may be. Yeah, what do you think? Do you think he's a man of his word in this moment that if Kate doesn't move, he'll actually just let her stay? I think I think he's a man of his word in that again he I think he's making a promise that he knows she won't keep. Right. Cuz I think up to this point he has been studying her for years. He's Javert, she's Valjean. <laughs> and, and that she really yeah. like he he has this completely blinded focus on capturing her years. And so Nathan after- Fillion is Cosette's mom. Yes, exactly. She, so he's Fontaine. Miss Anne Hathaway, Fontaine. He's yes. Fontaine. He sings "I Dreamed a Dream" uh, while passed out on the floor. I dreamed a dream of Taco Night, <laughs> and Monica, you are so honest. <laughs> You're the most honest person ever. <laughs> but so I, I do think that Mars is sort of, I think, making her an offer. Now, I think to answer your question, I guess if Kate had settled down, would Mars have arrested her? It's a good question. I think it says maybe more about him than it does about her. I'd like to believe 
he wouldn't because maybe he feels like, you know, she has truly moved on with her life. Maybe he can move on with his. Whereas one of the fascinations with both these characters, and I think we've talked about it before when we talked a lot of Edward Mars in season one, is that like they are such a key part of each other's lives. It's again, I, I know I keep invoking this comparison, but it really is Frank Abagnale Jr. and Hanratty and Catch Me If You Can, where it's the cat and mouse, but like when Tom catches Jerry, like the two of them need each other almost to, to, to for their each other's existence. And so I, I, I think we even see this where Mars makes a reference to the fact that, you know, Kate seems to call him on like all these major Roman holidays for some instant, right. for some, for some reason. But I, I think that he sort of maybe counts on that and that there is, for lack of a better term, a constant in each other's lives, as disquieting as it may be, there there's this sort of one relationship that exists in their lives when everything else doesn't. Yeah, I, you know what? Uh, it makes me think, is is Edward Mars ever moving on from the Sideways universe? Because Kate's good. clearly his constant. Well, I'm trying to remember, Mars in the Sideways universe, like, he still was the marshal taking Kate in, right? And she escapes right. from him yeah. in, in the taxi cab with yeah, Claire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, he's just hanging out. Yeah, so if Kate moves on, <laughs> I don't know what he's going to do. Do you think that all of, like, the lost randos who don't move on in the church, they all find each other and they just form, like, a grief group? They're like, Ooh. yeah, they just kind of left us, huh? Yeah, but like a collateral damage support group uh. of, uh, oh, Kate did this to me. Maybe you could have, like, decrepit Anthony Cooper in there. Uh, maybe Ben will attend it for a little bit before he eventually goes. Yeah, could be. Um, all right, uh, back on the island. Uh, they're back from their day at work. Uh, Kate's back. Sawyer's getting thrown in jail. Pickett tells him, if you got anything you want to say to your girl, you best say it tonight. Uh, Sawyer's got the great line in it. How was your day, honey? <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing as well is, much like the flashback is really laying it on thick with the, you're so honest, you're so loyal. They're really laying it on thick up to this point of Sawyer's going to die. They're really going to kill him. And we'll get to that moment later on, which I think is beautifully done. But I definitely think in hindsight, when you know that's not going to happen, man, it's not even foreshadowing. It is five or six shadowing at this point. They're like, well, I think they're going to kill Sawyer. Eight shadowing. Really, Keep it on really the numbers. Gonna, yeah, exactly. He's really going to do it. He's really going to kill Sawyer. Look at the way he pistol whipped him. He's thinking about it, at least. All right, back on the main island. It's a funeral for Mr. Echo. Uh, it's a short eulogy from John Locke, who went and grabbed the prayer stick. Says, I would say, by default, is this the best funeral that John Locke has been to in terms yeah, of the role he's played? So far, by default, for sure. I think he died for a reason. Hope it isn't too long before we find out what the heck it might be, because I'm real curious. Yep, it's not like people after the fact are have to make up a head cannon, yeah. and even then, it's just facts that are sort of surreptitiously revealed in the sixth season of the show. Yeah, and of course, he's going to see on the prayer stick, look north, John, lift your eyes and look north, John 305, and Locke is going to take that as a yes. sign to... He's going to say, damn it, I shouldn't have uh, should have kept the hatch, we yeah. could have watched north, yeah. hit film in there, that's clearly what that means. <laughs> lift your eyes and look up the hit film north with Elijah Wood, John. <laughs> Yes, and uh, and Kathy Bates playing an, an, an Inuit. There's an uncut edition of the movie North in the hatch. It's three <laughs> and hours and five minutes. In which it's even more Kiefer Sutherland as the Easter Bunny. Is Kiefer Sutherland in North? I believe that. No, you know what? It's Bruce Willis as the Easter Bunny. That's I was going to say, is. I have no memory of that. It's been a while since I've watched North, though. Has not been a while since I watched The Good Son. Emily and I uh, rewatched <laughs> The Good Son about a month ago. 
Yeah, you love referencing that movie, that uh, Elijah Wood-based love film. That. Love that. Um, it's a short eulogy for Mr. Echo, and we obviously spent a ton of time talking about Mr. Echo last week, Mike. Some great feedback came in between last week's recording and this week's recording um, that I want to read here while we are saying goodbye to Mr. Echo for real this time. This is the last we will see of his body, uh, that we are burying Mr. Echo and we are moving on from that storyline. And I thought that the, that listener Susan B had a really really great take on everything uh, with with Mr. Echo, uh, so I will read this in full. Susan writes. Mr. Echo's arc on the island is actually foretold in the story of Josiah that he related to Locke in What Kate Did. Like Josiah, Echo started out building a physical structure, a lowercase c church, to fulfill the debt he owed for desecrating Yemi's church in Nigeria. But when Locke lost his faith, Echo, like Josiah, realized the true church he needed to build was not a physical building, but a capital C church built of the word and faith. He abandoned the physical building for the word in the book he found. But the book Echo found was not only the Bible, a symbol of Echo's faith. It also contained and protected the missing reel of film, a symbol of Locke's faith. To me, this clearly shows that Echo's religious faith had to be symbiotic with Locke's faith, that the island was key to a greater purpose. We see the symbol of the two types of faith combined again when Locke builds his sweat lodge in Echo's abandoned church frame. Echo's faith had to protect Locke's when Locke's own faith failed him, just as the Hatch Bible protected that reel of film. In the very end, Jack saves the island because he finally understands Locke's heart. However, that could only happen because Mr. Echo sustained his faith when Locke's wavered. Like Locke, Echo's life served an important purpose, but neither lived to see the results of their faith play out. Yemi once told Echo that the difference in their sins was that his would be forgiven, but Mr. Echo built the capital C church. He paid his debt. He kept the faith and was martyred as a result. I believe the last shot of Echo and Yemi's children meant that both were again innocent and unburdened, absolved of their sins, and will be blessed with a happy afterlife together. I love that email. Not to, you know, compare them against others, but I, I think it's a really fantastic dive into the character. I think particularly the, the thing that I fixate on from this great email is the idea of the capital C church versus the lowercase c church, the idea of sort of externalizing your faith via an actual edifice versus more internalizing your faith and carrying it with you. And the way that it sort of was described in those last couple paragraphs almost reminds me of like a weird football game where if salvation is a touchdown, then Locke and Echo were essentially passing the ball back and forth to evade all of these blockers so that one of them could make it to the end. And granted, you know, Locke will not make it to the end end, but I think as we've spoken about and as the email speaks about here, Echo, you know, Locke was temporarily blocked, passed the ball to Echo, Echo carried that ball, he pushed the button, exploded, and then once Locke had gotten his, his faith back, Pass the ball back to him, and Locke is now able to carry forward with it. Yeah, I think it's a, a really lovely interpretation of the character. Sad to be gone uh, from Mr. Echo. Uh, still uh, a, an MVP front runner. Uh, he's gonna he's gonna clock in at sixteen. So it's at least it's a number. Yeah, sixteen, no longer going on seventeen. Yeah, so that that's it for Mr. Echo. But I I thought that that was great when that came in from Susan. I was I was really uh, really touched reading that, and I think that that's a great interpretation of his character arc. Um, um should we talk about the the stick of it all? Sure. Like this this is the last scene we're going to get on Island. What do you make of this? Because let's also 
couches in the fact that this was the quote-unquote fall finale of Lost, the end of this six-episode mini-arc. What do you make of this cliffhanger for this yeah, particular storyline? I think that they want to, you know, address Mr. Echo and not leave that hanging, um, you know, too long, you know, not to spend too many months without, like, any sort of indication of, like, Echo died for a, a larger purpose. Uh, and in true Lost form, they're setting up a mystery from it, like that Echo... Echo died, but left a message behind for John, basically, and Locke still feels like he's on the path. Um, you know, is it a little weird that, like, this is what's going to lead him to the flame station? Yeah, but, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say this on-island storyline is a bit of a nothing burger. I think it was just we really had to wrap up the Echo character in this mini-arc. Like, we couldn't come back after a few months and still have to bury Mr. Echo to, so, like, Let's take care of it. But a lot of it felt extraneous. And like you said, I don't think we needed the guidance from Echo Stick together. But I guess to the to the email's point, if this is Echo's final touch of the ball before he passes it off to Locke in terms of what to do, so be it. Or maybe Locke just happened to look at the right section of the stick yeah, at that particular I think so. moment. I think so. All right. So let's uh, speaking of the right section of the stick, let's go to Hydra, Woo-hoo! the Hydra Island. Uh, Kate is going to tell Sawyer everything that she knows about what's going on and about how she went and saw Jack and uh, that Jack's got to do the surgery and it's the only way to save your life and Sawyer's not into it and Kate gets mad before uh, other things happen. Let's listen in. Why the hell would you do something so stupid? To save your life. My life don't need saving. You want to die? Because that's what's going to happen. Pickett is just waiting for his chance. I've seen him look at you. Damn it, Freckles, stay put. And you know what he's going to do. So don't pretend like you don't care. Get out, Freckles. We've already been through this. Shut up, James. You don't want Jack to save your life? Then you're going to save your own. We're getting out of here now. Stop it. Damn it, Kate. Go! Get out of here! Run! You're out of your cage. Why don't you run, Kate? Because me, I ain't running. Because there ain't no place to go. What are you talking about? We ain't on our island. We're on another island, like an Alcatraz, a couple miles offshore. So unless you're a mermaid, or you got a boat... you planning on telling me this? Never. Why not? Why wouldn't you? Because I wanted you to believe that we had a damn chance. And then you excluded all of the kissy, kissy, kissy noises. Um, Mike, in the spirit of Goo Goo Gaga, I'm a baby, unless you're a mermaid. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, like, before we get into the kiss, but what if Kate was a mermaid? Like, what if they got Maybe that's why Jacob uh, ruled her out as a candidate. It's like, Like, what what the hell do we do now? And also, I discovered that you're a mermaid, and that just gave you an unfair advantage over everyone else. Yeah, they get to the ocean after, you know, they escape. Alex helps them get free. And of course, Sawyer's like, what the hell are we doing? Kate goes, 
All right. I got this. Hop on my tail. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> Don't worry. All right. Just straddle my shoulders. I've got this. And she no did. wonder she could easily escape. Like, maybe the end of this should have been Marsh chases her down yeah. right to the the Atlantic Ocean. And then she just dives into the waves and just leaves to go live in Atlantis for a little while to, to you know, uh, get her head below water, quite literally. Thingamabobs, I've got plenty. Uh, yeah, she has a bit of like, she has, she has the volume of Ariel Harriman. Uh-huh. So. And listen, she has daddy issues right like uh i could see king Tryon. like maybe ariel wouldn't burn down the grotto uh to kill king Tryon, but maybe she felt like she was going there's to something there's some commonality between ursula and edward mars i feel like yeah exactly he really uh wants her voice to trap in a seashell so that he could impersonate a beautiful woman at some i could see frederick lane pulling off poor unfortunate souls <laughs> just your voice <laughs> And he has a bunch of, like, weird goo creatures in the <laughs> FBI headquarters. Yeah. Anyway, so Sawyer and Kate have sex. Yes, which luckily in that case, she's not a mermaid. Otherwise, that would complicate things It'd be things strange. A lot. It'd be interesting. I don't know well, how Well, listen, would... if, if there's one station to keep a mermaid at, it would be the Hydra, right? Considering that they have those tanks. That's like, right. Like, Jack, you gotta, you gotta clear out of here. We got a mermaid that we're gonna have to house for a bit. It'd be very compelling stuff. Um, but she's not a mermaid, and they are going to, to, to make the bond. Uh, they, they have this moment of, uh, of, of the, the, of the, of the kissy face and the making out and i think just two people who've been in like a really destitute situation for a long time who at the very least uh have been uh you know i think at the very least are kindred spirits in like feeling like outsiders and have Mm -hmm. been you know made to feel lesser than some people because of like their criminal histories they've got a lot in common not the least of which is that they're both like severely attractive human beings uh and i think it it makes a lot of sense (gasps) that they have this connection here but for me it really speaks a lot more about where each of the where each person is in their life at this point in time than the two of them together like i feel like kate being somebody who who is like vulnerable in this moment and scared for whether it's her lover or scared for her friend you know in sawyer she has seen so much of herself reflected back and i think for sawyer being in this place where like he's now permitting himself to like actually have something nice in his life is a real upgrade from the sawyer that we have seen before like somebody who would like crush a frog just to get people to stop liking him you know yeah, I think that to that point, there is this idea of a lot of pop culture sort of institutes like the OTP of it all uh, and how like that's the one goal, the Nirvana, the Valhalla that we're sort of striving towards. To your point, I think it's much more realistic to talk about how there are certain relationships that we have in our lives that ultimately don't work out, but are foundational stepping stones to ultimately get us to that place. I agree. Look, I am I am a skate shipper on this podcast, and, and I think the two of them have fantastic chemistry, as is seen in this scene in this episode in particular. But I think there is value in looking back on your relationships and really realizing, okay, what did I sort of glean from past relationships that taught me about who I am as both a person and as a partner, and how has that informed the way I approach my other relationships, some of which maybe go into long-term status, some of which might even end in marriage. I think from that perspective, the two of them are foundationally important to each other, even if you disregard the love triangle of it all. I'm really intrigued as to why 
they made the choice. Even going past like the why they chose to to make this happen in this particular episode, why the two characters pursued it. I kind of think it's a bit like when the apocalypse is coming and you're like, well, uh, you know, it's all for naught. Might as well go balls to the wall or balls to the bars in a certain <laughs> oh, perspective. I, I think there is a certain sense of all being lost, definitely from Sawyer's perspective. And I think from Kate's as well, when Sawyer makes this revelation about Hydra Island, despite the fact that she's not a mermaid. I think right now it's it's less about like the ooh let me you know get smoochy smoochy with Sawyer. This is really a, a great time for some action, and more so maybe a feeling of despondence and finding comfort in the one person who you know like I'm going to be stuck here with possibly for a very very long time. I more so think it's it's couched in that than necessarily going after the romantic aspect, more of a companionship aspect, but that's also just my read. Yeah, I, I think so too, but I also think to the point, like, uh, if they love each other now, if they're in a loving relationship now, and then they're not by the end of the series, sometimes that's just life. I have a couple of very mm-hmm. good friends who were in, like, a really serious relationship with each other for a very long time. They are not anymore. One of them is married to somebody else, the other is engaged to somebody else, and the two of them remain good friends uh like that is a possibility it's you know not necessarily the story you hear all the time but it's certainly possible that you had that closeness with somebody uh and the closeness changes or if not evolves it changes uh and so i think that that is you know you know to fitzy's point earlier like is this a weird episode because sawyer and kate don't end up together no, because they were together for a time, and it was meaningful for both of them. And I think that it pushed both characters into the places that they end up in. So I, I'm totally fine with it. Though I do think that this happens because there's this, whether it's fan pressure or network pressure, that uh, the love triangle thing needed to take a turn. You know, yes. uh, I, I, so that's I totally agree with that. That's not great. But I think, like, you know, you either get swallowed up in like those like um uh you know t- you know top brass notes or you lean into them and make them work for you as best as you can and i think that this works for them as best as they can uh yeah i i agree that i think again i take less umbrage with the action and more to your point with the timing like, I think this very much reeks to me of like, okay, we have this six episode mini block of episodes. So let's throw in like a big ticket item that's really going to stem the romantic aspects of everything. Cause while I do find the kiss comes from a place of meaning, I don't know how I feel about it escalating to sex. Uh, that maybe feels like a bit too far of a leap. I know that these characters are horny AF, hence Sawyer getting that boner for Kate when she was changing a couple of episodes ago. But it does feel like a bit, especially like given the environment that they're in as well. Like there's no like perfect environment sans the sex tent in, uh, in Lost, but it feels a bit odd to jump to that particular perspective. This so is I think how the- I know Rodney Sesto is a fiction. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Rodney Sesto would have no problem. No like, issue. He goes, Dr. Seuss, I would do it in a cage. Uh, I would do it with some rage. Like, he is all over the place with that, quite literally. But it does feel a bit odd to have it escalate so quickly. Though, again, I guess if we're building to, well, this needs to be a huge moment for the love triangle of it all, 
I guess their hand was a bit forced to have it be done in these first six episodes. Yeah. Uh, I'm quickly bypassing uh, the flashback scene here. We'll get back to it in a second. But, smiley face French toast. But there, the, yeah, smiley, fra- smiley face French toast. What's in the powder was a question that I had. Anthrax. Yeah, I imagine that for like months now, uh, Kate has been trying to poison Kevin. He just never eats her cooking. Um, <laughs> so th- she's like, okay, we're going to Costa Rica. Oh, that's sweet. This is a, a, a completely unnecessary scene. Uh, you know, other yep. than like, I guess like it's helping her to turn towards like, oh, this isn't going to work out, whatever. Um, but in the cage that night, here's something that I really, really enjoy. I love this scene of Sawyer with Kate and saying, uh, Sawyer being like, so, you know, the other day when you said, I love you, that was just to get him to stop. Right. And she kisses him and that's her answer. And then he says, I love you too. And what I love about that is Sawyer is sort of the Han Solo typically, uh, mm-hmm. and like the very famous uh, "I love you, I know" between yep. Leia and Han Solo. Uh, I love that. Like it's sort of like Kate is Han Solo in this moment, and Sawyer is Leia. Uh, so it's like I love you too. Uh, she never really said that. She never didn't say. Yep, that she didn't just say like you know like maybe she it's, just like it's, doesn't want to uh, ruin the moment. Yeah, I I honestly think so. Again, I go back to what I said during Every Man for Himself that I think that a lot of what Kate said in that moment was sort of out of necessity. Do I think there there is uh, an emotional base for it? Absolutely, but I don't think she feels love for either one of these men, like capital L-O-V-E, at this moment. I think she certainly has care for them, but like you say, it's sort of like lying by withholding a bit and that she didn't directly answer his question. And it's nice to see Sorin or really vulnerable moment here as well especially considering how much of a a grumpy gus he's been this entire episode to have him you know show his typical smile for the first time and be like wow i'm actually very happy and not just because i got laid but because i i truly do care about this person here even if we're stuck on this island i'm happy to be stuck on this island with you i find it genuinely sweet yeah and i i think that sawyer being able to say something like that is just uh, a huge step forward in the character arc. Yeah, especially given the Cassidy of it all. Like, that's the only other time we've seen him really open his heart up to somebody. And even then, there was this bitter bite at the end where he ends up conning her, where I, I think this is a, a legitimate, sincere feeling from James Ford. He, She even calls him James early on, not to just snipe that. at him. Shut but up, also, James. Yeah, but it also shows, like, how how much they've gotten to know each other ever since those events of outlaws when they played never have I ever ironically the the last time that Kate mentioned she was uh you know she had been married before they see eye to eye in a way that two other people on the island really don't and I think that Sawyer is sort of marinating in that moment right now uh so Jack unfortunately is marinating in the marinade (laughs) he is he gets released from his cell I guess by Alex I don't don't know know how well, because we hear the damn intercom again. So could Smokey be involved? I don't know how he would imitate Alex yet. Yeah, I guess not, because Alex isn't in Jack's m- memory. Yeah, so I don't know how that would work necessarily. Um, but yeah, either way, Jack gets out. He goes to the monitor room. He grabs a gun. It's a Luger. Do, you uh, think, oh, do we think Ben let jack out yeah i think that that would work that would make sense because like he because it seems like with the scene that we're about to get to and spoiler alert which will be sound number seven it does seem like ben is super casual with when he just happens to walk in on jack watching tv 
I would not be surprised if he predicts Jack's path of like, well, he already faced the water, so he knows he's not going that way. Maybe he'll spy the TVs and see what's going on here. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. But Jack sees Kate and Sawyer together on the monitor. Uh, Great Matthew Fox, subtle performance of him just like processing all of that, I think, Mm -hmm. where I like the feeling that I get is like he's happy that Kate's happy. Or just happy that he's finally watching porn on the island for <laughs> a very so long, long time. It's been so long. Uh, and here comes Ben, and Jack is going to to weather some Benjamin Linus uh, taunting before he finally makes a choice. If it helps, I was surprised, too. If I were a betting man, I would have picked her and you. Shut up! Well, I suppose this would be the proverbial nail in my coffin, wouldn't it? Tomorrow. Sorry. Tomorrow morning. First thing. And everything I mentioned before. The instruments, the anesthesia, and someone who can hold the damn clamp. Yes, of course. I'll get it out. Your tumor. And I'll keep you alive. But I need your word. I need what you promised me before. I need to get the hell off this island. I will say this episode has incredible act breaks. Yeah, like they do this a, is a tense episode. It's a good episode. What are you talking they, they about? Do a, it's a good episode. They do a, yeah, they do a really good job of particularly setting up those act breaks to be like, oh, something big is happening. And then it cuts to commercial. Like, I know we disparage Alex's plan, but the whole they'll kill your boyfriend like they killed mine is a big moment. We just talked about done. Obviously, we're going to get into the ending very soon. Before we get into Jack's decision, there's a fun little inside joke, actually, in this scene where Ben tells Jack, if I were a betting man, I would have picked her and you. So, obviously, Darleton wrote this episode. And it's actually Darleton making a reference to themselves. Uh, apparently, they would use this phrase all the time in the official Lost podcast. And Lostpedia said, during the October 17th, 2006 podcast, which was only like two or three weeks before this episode aired, Kate's upcoming choice is teased. And Damon Lindelof, someone in Jess, says, quote, if I were a betting man, I would bet you $5 that she chooses Jack, which is sort of a paraphrase of what Ben says That's here. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Those guys are great. Uh, just like the, the meta way in which they played. I know like sometimes problematic in terms of like setting up expectations in a way that could never be met. Uh, but they're just so playful. Uh, I, I love them as a pair. Yeah, I really that hope would, that they get to make TV together again someday. That would be like if you and I wrote a show, Josh, and we like wrote a scene where they ate enchiladas off of each other, you know, or like, <laughs> or, like a character only exclusively yeah. said come coming out yeah coming out uh yeah for sure for sure uh but it's a, it's a great moment from jack uh and just like because like you can see like his plan is starting to develop um but beyond that i think it's also just him being like i gotta get the hell out of here this place is crazy this place is driving me nuts so yeah let's let's talk about that why do you think jack ultimately accepts this? do you think he was so 
swayed by watching Kate and Sawyer considering his his heartbreak for Kate? Could it be that he feels like there's nothing left for him here on the island and so he wants to like leave it behind? I think a, a bit of that and then also, you know, if he's able to do something good for her, he's going to do it no matter the personal cost, I think is something that he's open to. You know, that's the level to which he cares about Kate right now. I think also he doesn't want to see Sawyer die and like he sees Sawyer happy in that yes, moment. His, his best friends now, he you gets know? to see him. I gotta imagine that's not a nothing deal for Jack to see Sawyer in that state is like that means a lot. Well, in, in that state well you know but like i don't know i i feel i feel like it's just it's so different uh to see like sawyer and sort of like this this moment of like actual contentment uh that jack's not like a stone cold monster i have to imagine that moves him to some degree um, so then from that capacity when jack agrees to help ben does he have this plan in mind how much of this as we get into the next day on the operating table how much of, of jack's machinations has jackinations come up here well i wonder if like, he, to do it has he already thought about this to a to an extent of um <laughs> oh thank god you're here ben i was just about to tell you yeah. i want to go through with it yeah like has but has he th- you know when juliet approached him how much time did he spend thinking like this is how i would do it this is what i would do this is how i would make it look like an accident blah 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 um so does he already has he already like run through some scenarios in his head of what he could do uh and so maybe this is already something that's on his mind is like oh i could do that uh mm-hmm. but this time actually like pivoting it into um being a like a, a hostage uh situation uh so i i think that there's you know there's a non-zero chance that he's already kind of considered this you know heading into the monitor room yeah, or my my personal headcanon is that he, in this moment, I think, like you said, he watched the two of them and says, like, wow, they have each other. That's fine, but I need to protect them. Here's how I'm going to get the two of them off the side. So it's less about, like, being burned by Kate and more so trying to protect them. I do feel like as we get into the next day that, like, there's a, a shot of him, like, sneaking a look at the scalpel. That sort of makes me think maybe he, he comes up with it tomorrow. I think he could very reasonably just have a general idea of, I'm a doctor. I know what incisions I can make to really, you know, turn this situation into a, a very dangerous one. Let me go through with it and actually become this weapon. But I, I do think that this moment was sort of a, a switch for him and less so a decision that he had made previously and just happened to stumble upon a, a conversation with Ben when he decides to do it in that moment. Final flashback of the episode. Kate finds out she's taking a pregnancy test. She's not pregnant. Um, she's, you know, freaked out that like she, you know, she's like, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't lie anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that is sort of the ultimate symbol of sort of sticking with this choice, right? Like she is raising a family obviously being a parent holds a lot of weight for her we'll get much more of that as we get into the egg town of it all next season considering the past that she has had that i think for a lot of people and for her as well like marriages can be annulled and divorced but having a child complicates the situation immensely and so i could imagine that this is something that drifts into kate's head of like wow I mean, if I have a baby here, then I, I really have consigned myself to this fate. And from a guilt perspective, I don't think I can do that. Yeah, I think also she's just sick of everyone calling her Monica. She's like, I should have come up with a better name. 
I'm not yeah. a Monica. I just don't. I don't wear Monica I hate well. That name. Just like I just was. I was listening to Lou Bega's Mambo Number no. Five, and it was literally the first na- name that came to mind. And I and I love Monica on Friends. I'm just not Monica. Uh, you know, so maybe that's a, a piece of this. Like everyone thinks I'm honest. I'm not. Stop <laughs> saying it. It makes me feel bad. Uh, I can't keep running yeah. circles around all of you. Here's how dishonest I am. I drugged you. I drugged you. You finally ate my food. You finally drank a thing I gave you. I've been trying to drug you for months. Yep. And so uh, as she sort of just sort of, I think, uh, spews out a waterfall of truth for the first time in probably a good while to Kevin, he is slowly but surely losing consciousness as she had to knock him out. She basically, him I think out. to absolve him of guilt and also to make sure that he did not chase after her as she fill in the blanks. Everybody runs away to end a flashback. So that's the flashback surgery time. Uh, I got to say, I, I don't know. Certainly I have no idea how doctors prep for surgery. I've never had like major surgery or anything. I've only seen this shit on television, Mike. Uh, but Matthew Fox sells the vibe of a doctor. I don't know yeah. what kind of research he did. I don't know what kind of game footage he studied. Are you saying studied. he does have what it takes? You know, like the way like he scrubs in, just like the whole like demeanor of Matthew Fox in doctor mode, I feel like uh, uh, is, is, is really, really good. Uh, this is one of those lines that I was alluding to earlier uh, about like how Jack has some strange dialogue in here. Uh, so Ben's on the operating table and he says, no matter what, everything's going to be different now. Right. And Jack goes, no doubt about it. <laughs> Just so it's like, like, what a random, ba-do, ba-do. <laughs> no doubt about it. What an so- odd line. That's always stood out to me as one of the like, the, the Josh Wiggler odd lost lines, like the ones that I just like latch on to, like no doubt about it. And just like the line delivery is so casual. So yeah. odd. So everyone, so is everybody going to die now? No doubt about it. You know? Like, yeah. It, it's, and it's so like, if I were bad, I'd definitely perk up my ears a little bit. If I was not inundated with uh, anesthesia of like, wait, what, what, what do you, what do you mean by that? Why did you agree with me there? It's odd. It's so odd. Uh, but, uh, they're gonna, they're gonna put Ben under countdown from 2020, 19, uh, he doesn't even get to 18 all the way. Uh, I should note having just, uh, binged the Dark Tower novels from Stephen King, 19, it's the number of death. Uh, 19 is not one of the lost numbers, but 19 being such a recurring number in the work of Stephen King, which is an influence on Lost, uh, now makes me wonder how many times does the number 19 stealthily mm. pop up throughout Lost? Ooh, I'd be very it- curious to know. Is that like the sometimes why of the lost vowels? Does it occasionally pop up, but are yeah, obviously maybe. less important than four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty-three, forty-two? Uh, for anyone observant enough to to detect any times you see a, a nineteen, I'd be curious. I'd be curious to get that from people. Uh, but here is the nineteen. Oh wait a minute, my birthday is on eight nineteen. Oh, the number is Desmond. Death. Desmond, don't tell me anything. <laughs> Stay away. Uh, January 9th, a scary day. Um, all right, so Ben goes under. Danny Pickett decides, all right, game time. Let's do this. Let's go kill Sawyer. Uh, and then the other guy is like, hey, why are we doing that right now? He's, you know, we don't want to do that. Ben just went into surgery, and Pickett's like, yeah, he's an idiot. 
He went into surgery, put himself in Jack's hands. Shepard's not even on Jacob's list. Jacob, who's that? Who what? is Jacob? Is Jacob like, I don't know, Ben's like assistant? Did Ben make a list and send it to Jacob to type up and distribute as a memorandum? Yeah, what is all this? So this is our first time hearing the word Jacob on Lost. How about that? Yeah, that's crazy that it comes just in the middle of like this literal walk and talk dialogue with Danny Pickett in what is I think we'll get into it, whether this this list is the list, but is a pretty erroneous statement from Danny Pickett. Um, so so Daniel Brennan asked us, why does Danny say that Jack isn't on Jacob's list? Seems like a real casual way to contradict the show's end game. Um, and Ben Martell notes that it's never been clear what this list is. Uh, there's no reason to assume it's the list of candidates, especially given what Ben says to Jacob just before he kills him in the season five finale, the instant this what Ben says, Richard would bring me your instructions, all those slips of paper, all of those lists, and I never questioned anything. So if they're coming from Richard and going to, to Ben, Mike, um, are these lists that are authentically from Jacob? And if so, um, do we assign like candidate qualities to them? Or if they were actual candidates, would Jacob want them to be left alone because he would want them like he would want to observe them without too much interference? Well, a couple things about this. First, the list could easily be a hot or not list, you know, of like, let's rate the castaways on how good looking they are, which I'm surprised that Jack wouldn't be on there. But maybe Jacob has certain discerning tastes. It could be, look, we've talked in the past about how certain people might have uh, done certain things to cross them off the list for candidacy. We talked about this the very last week with Mr. Echo. Maybe it's a matter of Jacob is sending out lists of people to, like, keep an eye on, almost, for either promotion or demotion. I think it's it's pretty clear almost from the jump that Jack was someone who was very high on Jacob's list. For candidacy, hell, there's a lighthouse looking into his childhood bedroom. That shows how much Jacob was into right. the idea of Jack Shepard taking over the island. So maybe the reason why Jack wasn't on Jacob's quote-unquote list was because Jack was always a candidate for Jacob. And it was more so, hey, others, I know you have access to surveillance technology. Can you check in on some of these other people right. and see exactly, you know, if they are worthy of candidacy or not? Yeah, yeah. I think that that makes sense to me. Uh, but Pickett's going to take this as an opportunity to kick the snot out of Sawyer. It's going to be execution time, and it starts pouring rain, and there's, like, the big fight and the squabbling between him and Sawyer. He's got a gun on Sawyer the entire time. Literally mm-hmm. all Pickett's got to do is just pull the trigger. If he really wanted Sawyer dead, I don't know why he doesn't just do that. Yeah, you call me monologuing. You know, like, that's totally, like, a thing that Pickett could have done. Uh, so, you know, I think Pickett going... Especially when he was so adamant about, like, Ben's gone, so I'm taking this into my own hands, and his hands just don't move. Just do literally. it. Just get it done. If you're going to do it, just do it. But he doesn't. Um, while all of that's going on, and Kate's doing the, like, don't you give up, James! Don't yeah, you I- do it! I will say, so look, uh, we talked about how Evangeline Lilly is a fantastic crying actor. Again, I don't know if this is a hot take. I'm not a huge fan of her yell acting. It's just the way that... I love it. I I feel like the way that she says it, we get it a lot in this episode. I don't particularly love the timbre in her voice when she yells. Like the, I remember! 
Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Like the don't you do it? Like no, it's, it's very it. like teenage it. boy Peter Brady. I love it. I love it. Don't you dare! How dare you? How dare you? How dare? <laughs> Maybe you? it's time to change your yell timbre. No, game. I love it. I love it. Change nothing. You know, change some stuff, but don't change that. Change uh, that hair. No, yeah. Uh, so she's gonna scream for for Sawyer to not give up, but Sawyer doesn't want to see like the other guy shoot Kate, so he does give up. Meanwhile, in the hospital, in the in the surgery room, the OR, uh, Jack, I, some incredible Elizabeth Mitchell eye acting happening mm-hmm. here. Uh, as she just Elizabeth like, Mitchell showing that you can act with a mask on, people. No excuse not to have that. You know, she keeps looking at him, uh, waiting for the move because he's like, "You got to do everything I say." And she's like, "Believe it or not, I'm very good at following orders." But she keeps mm-hmm. waiting because she doesn't know what Jack's going to do. She knows that she made her pitch. She doesn't know if it landed. She's waiting to see what Jack is going to do, and he's not doing anything. So she just keeps looking at him. And I love that. And then when Jack cuts the kidney sack. Uh, and then knocks out the dude. The look on Tom Friendly's face. MC yeah. Ganey is an unsung hero of the early going of season three. Uh, I, I love the, can you hear me in there? And MC Ganey's just very casual. He goes, yeah! Yeah! yeah. <laughs> it's very, very good. Uh, but uh, Jack says, if I don't stitch him up in an hour, he's dead. So get in here and bring that walkie-talkie. Uh, we get to the to the moment where the rain is pouring down, and Pickett's got the gun, and Sawyer tells Kate to close your eyes, freckles. Uh, and it's and it's such again, even though you know that Sawyer lives, like it's a very beautifully done moment, like the stern look on Sawyer's face where he has basically signed his own death warrant. He says, "I would rather die right now than endanger Kate's life," and that is a crazy thing coming from the man. Who was in an episode, two episodes ago, called Every Man for Himself, and who had that attitude ever since he landed on the island. Like, it's, it's a crazy jump from the character. Obviously, I think we, the, the point we remember a lot from Sawyer's story arc is him jumping out of the helicopter during There's No Place Like Home, but I think this is another big moment yeah, in terms he's of. He's ready to go if he thinks yeah. that it's going to be a good thing for Kate. Yeah. And J- and Jacino acknowledges this as well. He the life and death fake out is fantastic. I love the swelling mute to be like, holy crap, they're finally going to kill Sawyer. And luckily, thanks to Tom Friendly, he ends up uh, Sawyer ends up you know with his head on his body still. Yeah. So uh, the the call comes in. Uh, it's Mister Friendly. He says, "Put put Kate on the walkie. Do it now, Danny." Uh, and so Danny gives the walkie talkie to Kate. And we get the episode ending cliffhanger. And it's going to be the last thing we hear or see from Lost for several months when Lost goes on hiatus. Down the hatch will not be going on hiatus, but Lost does. Hey, you have about an hour head start before they come after you. Do you remember what story I told you when you were stitching me up? Do you remember it? Yes, yes, I remember. When you get safe, you radio me and you tell me that story.
epic, uh, legendary. I love this. Yeah, this. Th- if you have to pick a way to end this Hydra mini arc, this is absolutely the way to do it. People were thrilled for so many reasons. First, it means they're finally getting off of Hydra Island, hopefully, but also like. This is Jack showing why he is the leader of this group, even in a micro capacity, even when it's just two people. This is him putting himself on the line and giving orders to protect others, live together, die alone. And it's such like just such a badass moment from Jack. Uh, damn it, Kate Run is also very thematic to Kate's character. She was born to run quite literally. And Matthew Fox just commands this scene between like even the action that he takes outward of K when he yells or he dies to everyone else to basically be like, I'm serious about this. Just such an incredible turn from, from Jack in this last act of, again, if we're talking about the power that he is able to rest from Ben, he's able to do it while Ben is literally resting here in such a fantastic way. Yeah, it's great. I, I think like, so even internally within like the Kate story arc, like, Kate is about like she runs away even though she really doesn't want to you know like she runs away because she feels like she has to like she can't settle down she can't stay in one place and then here at the end Kate doesn't want to run she doesn't want to leave and Jack is one like you have to run run uh so i think it's an interesting turn for her where like there's a time now we've reached a point where she wants to hold her ground uh, and he's like you gotta go you gotta split uh so that's really great uh we have this in from eric divestein it says this is maybe the second best cliffhanger of the entire series do you agree or disagree Ooh. um that is so hard to rank on the fly that i i don't think that i could agree or disagree other than i think by instinct i would say no just because yeah. there's so many um but this would be certainly upper half no yeah, I mean, I no would say, question and i think that would be like you know upper uh like you know could be top 20 i think it's an incredibly big cliffhanger but it doesn't exactly have me wondering like what's gonna happen next because jack pretty easily outlined what's going to happen next as opposed to i mean i would say one i would put above this and i'm assuming that the number one he's referring to is through the looking glass understandably so but i would put like the cliffhanger from lockdown above this because that really opens up the floodgates of oh my god this guy's another what the hell is going to happen next uh that to me ranks a bit above this but i do agree this is a very 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 high quality ending and an episode that i think ebbs and flows a bit depending on what storyline you're pursuing but overall i think is a great episode yeah uh it's it's i think a a really fun ending um to the to the opening arc uh and i know that there's some questioning even about whether or not we want to think about this as an opening arc this was from dallin cervo is it wrong to look at these first six six episodes as a batch Uh, (laughs) you had that word in your head these these first sex episodes uh (laughs) as a batch and i think it is correct to look at them like this um you know this was a a a, a six episode pod that took some heat from the fandom uh and damon lindelof and carlton cuse even spoke about it at the 
the time. Uh, and this was uh, comments made by Carlton Cuse. He says, to make an honest statement about it, I think we feel like four of the six were good episodes and a couple were not good episodes. I honestly believe the next group of episodes is really good and a lot of the criticism of the first six will be ameliorated by the grander view of this year. I agree with that. Um, one of the decisions we made as producers is that the, the premiere would take place exclusively among the others. Originally, the second script that we wrote was a lock story, but because of post-production and needing to do polar bear effects, among other things, we ended up flip-flopping the third and second episodes. So the second episode ended up being an other-centric story. So I think right out of the gate, the audience started to get the perception of an imbalance. We often ask ourselves, even though there wasn't much choice to be made, had we just aired the episodes a little differently, would that perception have been the same? Um, So Damon and Carlton look at the first six as a six, and I think that the question that they were left with at the time, and, you know, who knows what their answer is today, uh, but the question they were left with at the time was like, was this an issue of we didn't air them in the right order? Like, if further mm. instructions goes before Glass Ballerina, is this first six just viewed totally differently? I don't know. And I, th- I, I don't think so. I think we sort of talked through that with these two episodes that I think, you know, it is a little weird how further instructions is sort of sandwich in there that it takes an entire other episode before we finally get to what happened after the hatch. But I think the qualities of those episodes speak for themselves in a, in a manner of speaking to go back to Dallin's question. I mean, I would say we have to consider this a batch because that's the way they were produced as well. You know, I, at the end of every season, I like to sort of try to create eras of each season, but up to this point, and I would say actually probably for the entirety of the series, this is really the only time that the creators themselves created an era of saying, okay, we want to create a compact six-episode stretch that takes us out of season two and brings us into some climactic stuff into season three. And I believe it was made from that perspective to the point where when we move forward with, with you know, episode seven from then on out, it's going to be a little less discerning as to the arcs that occur. This feels very complete. I mean, the quality, I think that the question more so comes down to should we be painting the six-episode stretch with the broad brush of it being the worst six-episode stretch in Lost History? Which I think I want to get to that when we get to the ratings, because I don't think so. Obviously, there's more nuance to that. But I think you have to look at this as a six-episode batch to the point where they realized they're not going to do this anymore after that. that they're going to stop taking breaks between airing episodes from at a least large intentionally, regard. yeah, intentionally. Yeah, and once and once we get into season four, obviously that was writer strike based, but they're going to all air them back to back to back to back to back. They're more fine airing things in a straight shot in the spring than taking a months long break to to get through the holiday season. Um, this is from Stefan Johnson. Stefan wrote in and said, "Do you think that one of the problems with the first six episodes is that the flashback character seems to have the B story on the island?" I think that that's probably. I think that that's true for this episode. Uh, like Kate doesn't necessarily feel like the central character of the oh, gotcha. episode, you know? Oh, uh, well, so, well, let's look at it. So Jack, I mean, I guess Jack is the central character of a tale of two cities, but, but it's I feel kind like there's, of, it's split, right? It's yeah, split with exactly. Sawyer and, and it's Kate. much more, I feel like the others are almost the central character of a tale of two cities. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, the glass ballerina, it is about sun to a large extent, but I feel like there is some, ja- there's some Kate and Sawyer stuff in there as well. I do feel like further instructions is predominantly a John Locke episode. Uh, I would say that every man for himself is predominantly a Sawyer episode. And I would say the cost of living is predominantly an echo episode. Yeah. So I think that there's two for sure. The sun episode and the Kate episode where it feels like there's just not as much focus on yeah. them. And then, and then, and then I mean, arguably Jack like, as well. Yeah. Let's say two and a half. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would say so. I don't know. I think um 
I, I think it's just not fun to watch, you know, three of the very main characters being kind of powerless. And that's mm-hmm. basically what we're getting from them for six sustained episodes. It's like there's there's something different about having the main characters having a prisoner as opposed to being prisoners. Um, that it's it's not necessarily fun to watch. Yeah, well, and especially since I think the fun that came with the Henry Gale arc in season two was that we didn't know the prisoner, but we knew the jailers. And now the situation is reversed, and I think it's less intriguing to be like oh, what are Ben and Juliet fighting about? Because they really hold the cards close to their vest for these first six episodes, except for that To Kill a Mockingbird movie moment as to how the two of them feel about each other. Next episode is when we're really going to start to get hints about that. But they really try to keep the others shrouded in mystery to the point where we really don't know too much about them. And so there's not much intrigue in hindsight as to what they're bringing from from a character perspective. From, you know, if we're talking about flashback characters, my issue is more so that the flashbacks really don't color in too much more of these characters. I think that there's a lot of just relitigating things we already knew about these characters in the vast majority of these flashbacks. And while it doesn't necessarily make them like entirely distasteful and just bad to watch, it's a nothing burger. It, it really just feels like it's, it's, it's a bag of air that we bring back for three or four scenes of like, okay, I guess this is a fun way to see a character in a new situation, but like, I don't know how much we can really take away from them. Uh, Jim Fell's music analysis. Go. We got two videos. And first, actually, let me issue a mea culpa for the great Jim Fells because you asked last week, is there, was there some sort of talk about, uh, Echo's theme during his death scene? Last week, and while it was not in the scene, the uh, video for the cost of living, it was in the video for all the way back during the 23rd Psalm when Jim first talked about that motif and how it obviously came back. So, again, my bad. It had referred to a previous video, not the most immediate one. But Jim has two videos. One focuses on mainly Kate's theme. Uh, he makes note that Kate's theme is actually used very differently during the Hydra arc. Like, for example, when she first gets put in the cage at the end of the aforementioned A Tale of Two Cities, it's very downplayed and subdued. It's almost like she's defeated from a certain perspective. When she climbs out of the cage for the first time in Every Man for Himself, it's more rushed and active as to be like, oh my god, Kate's finally invigorated now. Uh, we get a skate theme that gets introduced during the Sawyer-Kate moments that's going to come across a lot. And finally, in that final scene when Jack takes charge in the OR, his theme from Confidence Man pops up, which I think is an interesting representation of Jack sort of going rogue and sort of having a hidden intensity to him than just like the mild-mannered leader. Confidence Man is an episode where he arguably crossed the line in getting Sawyer tortured to get what he wants. And to see him go to extremes once again, I think, is very emblematic. Um, all right. Before we get into the, to the 23 points, Mike, I know you wanted to introduce a new segment to Down the Hatch. Yes, so uh, we have, you know, some rankings running. Obviously, we have the BLB, the Ben Linus beatdown. But watching a Kate episode again, I was really reminded of something we talked about a while back and just never put into perpetuity. I think we need to officially make a running ranking on Down the Hatch of Kate aliases. Kate has, I think, four aliases up to this point. I think we should do a running list of them because the more Kate episodes we get into, the more aliases are going to be added on. You know how I I feel about alias, so I am on board. Uh, It is a show about a spy. I will follow your lead. You can be the arbiter of the alias rankings. 
All right, so let me give out the four here, and let's come up with an initial ranking of four that will assumingly be added to. So in chronological order, Kate's aliases so far are Annie, the Canadian backpacker and farm worker on Ray Mullen's farm from Tabula Rasa. We have Maggie Ryan, the bank robber from whatever the case may be. We have Joan Hart, don't call her Melissa, the, uh, the, which was Kate's sort of blonde alias before she does the Kate's motel of it all in Born to Run. And most recently, we have Monica Callis, the housewife from I Do. Josh, okay. Do you have any initial thoughts yeah, here? Yeah, I do. I, I know how I would do this if I were ranking them. And how I would rank them would be um, how effective the alias was. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how, how much mileage was Kate able to get out of one of her aliases? So with that being said, I think Joan Hart in Born to Run, she gets, you know, busted. Uh, you know, she's very close to getting busted. She kind of busts herself. Uh, Joan Hart, I think I would have in, in the bottom spot. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Also, it's the one that we see for the least amount of time. So, like, just purely by not getting to see Joan Hart in action, I think that we could, uh, well, we could give her the bottom spot at the moment. I think I would go Maggie Ryan next. Yeah, listen, I know it's a little bit of whatever the case may be, sort of connotation, but also, like, I don't understand her becoming a bank robber to get this toy plane, and also it's just a very unsavory look on her. It is risky, unsavory look. It's a short period of time, so I think Maggie Ryan would get third. Um, And then it's a question between Annie the backpacker and Monica. We don't know how long she's undercover as Monica for. We know that she's undercover as Annie for at least a few months on Ray Mullen's farm. She's about to leave... And she, if you know, if she had been able to leave on her own terms, I think it would be Annie with a bullet. But the truth is, is that she lets herself get into the truck with Ray Mullen, who's mm. about to turn her in to U.S. Marshal Edward Mars. So he busts her, right? The Peach Man busts Annie the backpacker. Yeah, and whereas Monica, with Monica busts herself. Literally no one knew. No one had any idea. Uh, and so she's just like, you know what? I'm sick of being Monica, but like I've run the clock and I've gone as far as I can go as Monica and I can't do it anymore. But as far as like she was able to preserve her cover and keep it intact, Monica gets first place for me. You know what? Let's do it. Let's let's put Monica in first place. It's going to be weird since, uh, you know, I, I don't think that this flashback is looked upon particularly well. And, you know, any the Canadian backpacker has brought us so much love. But if we're just talking about, like, you know, efficiency, uh, I think, it, she, you know, she's undercover for a while. She probably could have stayed. Yeah. I mean, she could have. Mars made the offer and she very easily could have stayed and just continued making tacos. So congratulations, Monica. You are right now the number one right. What's what's best for Monica? Monica is the best right now. She's the best. She's the best alias. All right, let's do 23 points. I've got three MVPs. You've got two. You've got three LVPs. I've got two. I'll just kick us off because it's the Hydra Trio and I'm giving a point each. Uh, one to Jack, one to Sawyer, one to Kate. Uh, Jack has a really great episode here. His plan is really amazing. Some really great exchanges with Ben. Uh, I think Sawyer exhibits a lot of personal growth in this episode and, uh, the willingness to, to die on the sword to protect Kate is just like a huge step forward for the character arc. And then Kate is just running circles around everybody in Florida. These people have no idea what she done. Uh, so I think all three of the Hydra three have a good episode episode this week so i'll give a point to each of them so i'm gonna throw one on to jack because i totally agree like this is the most in control he's been in quite some time 
on Lost, where he literally has a man's life in his hands. And I think he's also, I think Matthew Fox just really brings it to every scene in this episode. Honestly, looking back on these first six episodes, except for the very annoying chain pulling in A Tale of Two Cities, this is a very high group of episodes for Jack as a character. Like, I actually really enjoyed watching Jack in these first six episodes. So I'm going to throw him a point. And I'm going to throw, maybe for the first time ever, fact check us on this, I'm going to throw a part uh, point onto Edward Mars. I'm going to throw a point onto the Marshal because he gives sound advice here. It's it's rare, and I, you know, much like we do with other characters on Lost, I do want to give kudos to recurring characters that are ordinarily very bad, but sometimes do good things on occasion. And I think Edward Mars, I got to commend him here for giving good advice to Kate. Yeah, I don't know if we ever gave a point to the Marshal before, but he gets a point here for sure. Yeah, so so moving on to our LVPs, I'm going to tell you right now, two are going to Danny Pickett for me. Make it a a third. I'll toss one on. Yeah, just because, like, I think him taking control away from Ben is foolish. I think him continuing to be a brute to Sawyer to make up for the fact that his wife is dead is foolish. And even when he has the gun literally in his hands and can make the killing shot... He doesn't yeah, even he doesn't do it. Take then. it. Yeah, that's yeah, right. I, I think I think Danny Pickett just has egg on his face continually over the course of this episode. He sucks in this episode. He sucked at that game. And I'm gonna give my last point to Alex. Yeah, I will too. It's doubled up. Oh man, you can't go I, into a into a shocker fight with a slingshot. Yeah, and look, you you got the advantage on them for all of 0.5 seconds. You got your message across, then you probably got taken away. I still don't know what her intentions are. But if whatever they were, she may have failed at them. Maybe if her intention was just to serve as a distraction so that Kate knew that Sawyer could die, I guess mission successful. But it it had to have been done in a better way than this. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't care for it. I think it's it's bad stuff on Alex's part. So yeah, I'll give Alex an LVP there as well. Uh, which means Alex is in this category. There's a few negative twos here uh, in the season rankings, and she's one of them right now. Um, but Pickett's uh, really pulling up anchor here at negative wow. six. Pickett is veering into. I think he's past Charlie Charlie territory, and he's slowly reaching the Pickett Anthony is, Cooper yeah, territory. Pickett is currently um, in second place in the LVPs overall. Negative seven to Anthony Cooper's negative eight. I wow. expect next week, at least for a moment in time, Danny Pickett will be our LVP of Lost for I a mean, little bit. Considering what happens to him next week, I think he'll get he at dies! least one LVP. He dies! So I do think that that's probably going to happen. Um, Alright, 4.2 stars, Mike. I gave Tabula Rasa a 3.5. I think I do is a marginally better episode it's probably a worse Kate episode, but it's a mm-hmm. better episode of Lost. So I'm going to grade it above Tabula Rasa, but not by much. Uh, I'll give it a 3.6. Yeah, I'm just below you at a 3.5. Had the exact same thinking, actually. I gave Tabula Rasa a 3.4. I was also thinking, like, what other episodes I gave a 3.5 to? I gave Abandon a 3.5. I gave The Hunting Party a 3.5. And this feels sort of like very similarly in line for me. You know, in my rubric, it's a great episode of Lost. There are many great elements, but not enough to necessarily put it into the top tier. And I think that the Hydra Island stuff is really invigorating, particularly the way that Jack sort of digests the information he'd been given at the cost of living and how he ended in particular, as well as the Kate and Sawyer of it all, even if I don't think it necessarily needed to jump to bedromantics. That being said, as I said many times before, the flashback, well, to see Kate in, in a new light doesn't really, there's not really anything new brought to the table there. 
And the on-island stuff just feels like complete set dressing to me that honestly just felt like it had to be added in there to tie a little knot onto the end of the Echo stuff before moving on to uh, Episode 7. So with my 3.5, your 3.6, the audience gave it a 3.2. Overall, I've seen as low as a 1.6 and as high as a 3.9. So a bit of range there, but that's going to give an overall ranking of 3.45 and that's going to make it our number three episode overall of these first six. Yeah, so the, the six are ranked as follows. Further instructions bringing up the rear with 2.48. In fifth place, it's the Glass Ballerina with 3.02. In fourth place, it's Every Man for Himself with 3.14. Then it's a little bit of a jump to I Do in third place, 3.45. Then it's A Tale of Two Cities in second with 3.83. And King of the Mountain is the Cost of Living, 3.92 here for this first batch of six. So, so let's look back on this now, because now we officially have the first six episodes. We have watched them very recently so looking back on them josh like what is our overall things i mean i think it's safe to say that we should not be saying that the first six episodes are the worst six episodes in lost definitely not i i'm i'm hard pressed off the top of my head to think of like what would be the biggest like six episode stinker stretch but this is not maybe maybe some stuff in season six you know this is not that it's not like six episodes in a row that are clunkers uh you know there are there are things to love about a lot of these episodes um there are things to not be as impressed by in some of them um that is often just the case with lost i'd have to really sit down and look at the episode order of the show and tell you what my instinct was uh on what is like the the biggest stretch of just like total weak sauce um yeah and off the top of my head i don't know yeah we'll have to look through our rankings but and even like even compared to the way that season two started because i feel like season one we can't compare season one had an incredible start but even season two you know we talked about man of science man of faith and orientation are amazing episodes adrift is a bad episode but then like everybody hates hugo ooh and found and abandoned are all like below average to pretty good episodes and that sort of is actually a very similar mirroring to what happens here where you have two really good episodes in a tale of two cities and the cost of living you have a solid episode in i do you have a pretty good episode in every man for himself like maybe a below average episode in the glass ballerina and a bad episode in further instructions so what i would say is that it's not a bad stretch of episodes it really just runs the gamut And maybe it's because, much like we talked about in season two in retrospect, because it is so uneven in quality, it makes people remember it much less fondly. All right. Well, I think we're going to look at next episode pretty fondly. Not in Portland coming up. The first Juliet flashback, uh, a really exciting pulse pounding Hydra Island escape. Uh, Really excited for for this one. Season three, episode seven. Why is that... uh that sounds like something. Yeah, that sounds like something. I don't know. I'll have to... All right, we'll look to, into that and see I'll, if there's... I'll have to consult yeah, something. To, yeah. I feel like if things are coming full circle. It's like a full wheel or something with whether we should be All doing right, well, something. Well, let's just... A fr- full frozen donkey wheel. All right, well, we'll we'll, we'll get back to you on, on if we remember yeah, why this, Season this 3, is, Episode 7 is a thing. This is awesome. This is one of those things where it's like, 
oh, we've waited. It's sort of like the 23rd Psalm, where we've waited so long to find out what the deal with Juliet is. It is a tragic story. Freaking Richard Alpert is here. Yes, yes, Mr. he is. Mr. Carbonell has officially arrived on Lost. Yes, and, he has. Yeah, I mean, I think the killing of Danny Pickett next week is going to be a symbol of how the season and Lost as a whole is sort of moving on from its first six episodes, for better or for worse. And I'm very excited to see what the rest of the season provides. All right, so send your feedback in down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. Subscribe, ratings, and reviews. Greatly appreciated. Mike Bloom, what do you got going on outside of all this? So as I mentioned before, I, I was able to fill in for you on uh, part one of the Black Panther coverage here on Everything is Super. I got to get together with your Lovecraft Country co-hosts, Kevin Mahadeo and Latanya Starks, to talk through the tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman and really break down what him and T'Challa, uh, King of Wakanda, meant to the movie, to the MCU, and to the world in general. To see the world weep so profusely even weeks afterwards really shows the shock but overall effect that the character and the actor have had. I thought it was a really fantastic discussion from Kevin and Latanya in particular, so be sure to check that out. And hey, we are nearing nearly one month from now is going to be Star Trek coverage on post-show recaps with Star Trek Discovery coming around. Myself and Jessica Lease, who just concluded some uh, Tough as Nails coverage with Phil Kogan over on, on Rob Has a Podcast, we'll be covering that episodically as well as doing a big old wrap-up of Lower Decks, which is currently ongoing the week beforehand. So be sure to check that out in addition to all the other Big Brother stuff I have going on. All right. Post Show Recaps has a ton going on. We're going to do part two of Black Panther on Everything is Super this week. We're going to talk about the movie proper. Um, we have Lovecraft Country is still going on here on Post Show Recaps. We've got Ang in there, the Avatar The Last Airbender rewatch. We're launching a new podcast this coming week. Mike, are you a Pen15 fan? Oh, I do really enjoy Pen15. I've watched a couple of episodes because you sort of have to be in a certain mood, I think, for some of the cringier. It's very comedy. cringy. Very cringy. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's cringy for those of us that obviously like this, this fits our wheelhouse, right? Cause I know I personally, I went to middle school in the early 2000s. And so this really speaks to me and my generation, even though I do think that it sort of permeates other people's generations too. Yeah. Very much a millennial, so old type of show. Uh, Pen 15, I'm going to be recapping season two, which is coming out September 18th, one episode a week. We have a preview show that will be on the post show recaps main feed in just a couple of days. It's myself. It's the great Emily Fox and it is our great friend making her podcast debut Lee McLaren going to be a really really funny show Lee is one of the funniest human beings I've ever encountered in my entire life so I'm very excited to see what she does when her powers are unleashed in podcast form so it it should it should be a pretty fun podcast so if you like pen 15 if you haven't checked it out it's all on Hulu the first Mm -hmm. season worth checking out Uh, (laughs) I think that the podcast will be worth it too I think if you are a fan of wet hot American summer particularly Adults acting like teenagers interacting with kids of the proper age, then Pen15 is for you. It's going to be good. It's going to be a fun time. So we've got that coming out. So make sure that you're subscribed to Post Show Recaps. You won't miss a thing. Until next time, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Four, eight, 15, 16, 20, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 